Eben Newman is the managing director of Outside Music. Outside Music is an independent record label roster that includes a number of award-winning artists. It's one of the leading independent distributors in Canada. Some of the artists that Outside Music has worked with include Jill Barber, The Weather Station, Rose Cousins, Aiden Knight, and Justin Rutledge. In 2019, Outside Music launched Nextdoor Records, a new label designed to provide equitable support and creative freedom to their songwriting community. I spoke with Evan about Nextdoor's mandate and what it means for fostering work that engages with the politics of our climate emergency. In a condition of crisis, what can musicians do beyond what they're doing? Writing songs. Can they use what Evan describes as their stature to not only move audiences, but also encourage movement at the policy level to respond to carbon intensive human activities, like how folks get to shows, how they get their music, and whether they're producing all kinds of plastic waste at those shows. Evan runs outside music with the passion of a fan. In this conversation, he talks about how the rationale for who they work with does come down to who they're inspired by, the music they feel really needs to be heard. Part of this is also built on the faith that, as he says here, music can enact change. If it's true that, and I agree with him on this point, the overwhelming deluge of information from news and other sources isn't necessarily communicating the urgency of eco-catastrophe, then music might need to not only move people, but move into a place of mobilizing people. The way it does that is through communicating a language of feeling, speaking to people's anger, anxiety, their stress, and even their solipsism, letting them into the conversation about what climate politics should look like. As an educator in the music business program at the Nova Scotia Community College, he says he's working with young people who are attuned to the reality of the climate crisis and curious about how to craft a way of working with artists that is environmentally ethical. He clearly derives some hope from knowing that these folks are working to figure out ways of changing an industry that, in his words, is still necessarily tethered to capitalism. The mere fact that a new generation is entering the conversation about how music and climate change, arts and commerce, the environment and consumerism, means that transformation could become easier to imagine. I'll be discussing these issues with Evan, along with Shannon Miedema, Kim Fry, Joanna Bull, Way Mason, and Braden Lamb this Wednesday, uh, April 26th, at Halifax's Central Library. It's a free event titled Changing the Tune on Climate, and it's going to feature a number of performances by artists like Aquaculture, T. Thomason, The Gilberts, and Kristen Martell. We hope you'll attend, and it's going to be a celebration of music, uh, but also an interesting discussion of environmental justice. I wanted to ask you about running a label, mm -hmm. running a record label, and doing so sustainably. It's the case that um, whether you choose to release records today via vinyl or streaming, either way, you're kind of participating in, you know, what Imra Zeman and other people have called petro culture. And so, like, that's a tricky thing if you're trying to run a label uh, in, in a way that is environmentally uh, ethical. How do you think about the ways that the music industry um, can be less carbon intensive? And I guess in particular, like the music publishing industry. Yeah, I, I mean, record labels are culprits in, you know, climate emergency. And, and it's something that because, you know, it's arts and commerce, right? Where the arts, uh, the, the musicians, the artists are very cognizant and very aware of 
um, and that's been since the beginning of time in, in music, of uh, environmental issues and wanting to address them and wanting to um, be able to contribute to the saving of the, the environment uh, through climate action. But for us on, on the, you know, they're making records. There is a huge carbon imprint from touring, from the making of physical product, the, the ingestion of uh, streaming uh, music. There's just the music industry itself uh, is a large contributor to, uh, you know, to, to environmental problems. And it's something that, you know, theoretically, all of us, labels, artists, everyone involved, really want to change. And there's been a lot of talk and a lot of issues and a lot of events, a lot of protests on how we do it. A lot of, you know, I think the the core activity from the artists is trying to push the government to enact some sort of legislation and using their platform. And, and if you look at it internally, and that platform is on a broader scale, um, internally for the music business, it's a tough road to navigate. It really is. And and I like that you point out that like the the solutions have to obviously come at the structural level. Like I think so often we do tend to like um reduce the the quality or the question or the the pace of change to like these individual actors and sort of extol the virtues of one particular, let's say, label. You know, those manufacturers, those labels are all bound up in a much more complex system, right? Mm-hmm. Um and you're necessarily kind of in some, you kind of sucked into competing with them within that space. Um, and so, yeah, I think like that negotiation, being aware of that is really key. And then like, you know, outside music, right. This is the label. It's, yeah. it's, it's clear that like your, your label is attempting to balance the commitment to, I would say like ex- more experimental, maybe boundary pushing and politically conscious music, mm-hmm. uh, like balancing that with staying commercially viable. I wondered if you wanted to speak to that, but also if you could like point to just particular examples of records that you think do that exceptionally well. One of the initiatives we started a couple of years ago with a label under the outside music umbrella called uh, Nextdoor Records. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nextdoor Records had a mandate of working with marginalized artists and uh, younger artists and artists who had a political bent. And um, one of the first ones that we worked with who had come over from outside music is an artist by the name of the weather station. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is uh, Tamara Lindemann. And she was basically, um, you know, became self-taught, self-aware, self-educated on climate emergency and became actively involved and sort of, you know, had a feeling of, of helplessness and um, wanted to enact some sort of change. And she made a record called ignorance. Um, and it was about basically, um, her observations of you know the climate crisis and her take on being on the road and and what's happening in the world um and she used her platform because that record got uh global acclaim uh you know juno nominated uh got shortlisted for the player's prize got huge features in the new york times and other big publications and she used that platform to address like this is something that's of huge concern for her and she wrestles with the facts of you know being a touring artist and she understands that by being on the road by creating this physical product that she's participating in the things she's actively protesting against and and uh it's a problem for her you know to to wrestle with that um and for us you know 
we're tethered to capitalism and with with capitalism comes like we have to provide this product in order to earn revenue in order to do the things we want to do uh, pay salaries and, and all that and it's we have to be strategic because it's a consideration it's a massive consideration on our part as a company it's our responsibility to be like okay do we press product you know physical product for this artist or do we just sustain it through digital only which is still a footprint but nowhere near as large if, if we're pressing a thousand records because there is there are many times where you'll press a thousand records and you'll be left with 500 when there's the pandemic like we oh, were man, sitting yeah. on a lot of products um and after a while i mean it becomes obsolescence and we have to destroy it mm. so it's it's also minimizing our imprint by you know having you know realistic forecast but then it's just like if we under manufacture and then the artist is going on tour they're like well i need more because that's the way they sustain themselves on tour through the sales of of merchandise because the margins are at least better because they're you know not making much money on the live circuit because the costs are so high mm. you know if we think of the artist being able to maintain their living by performance or you know the exploitation for lack of a better word of recorded music um, and balancing that with environmental responsibility. That title concept of ignorance is so interesting and 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 sort of generates so many thoughts around like how how frequently these kinds of um, you know pieces of information like the one you just gave us, right? This sort of data dump of all of the things that we should feel conflicted about, um, you know, leave us vexed but with nowhere to go, right? Mm-hmm. Ignorance is like this really, to me, um, interesting concept because the actual like explicit way that she in the album, like in the liner art for the album articulates uh, the potential of ignorance is that, you know, it is a potentiality. It's not something that limits you. Mm -hmm. It's, it's something that if you attempt in any way to remedy it actually kind of empowers you, you know, like, and that to me is, is, uh, Lindemann's like really remarkable insight when it comes to like the power of music, mm-hmm. you know, is, is this idea that, you know, leading up to this, uh, I think ultimately canceled mega event, the big climate thing festival, she was interviewed by Rolling Stone and said like, this is a huge opportunity for people to collect and work through in the way that music allows them to all of the unsettled feelings that we, we typically feel. Uh, in relationship to the climate crisis. And I guess like just kind of zooming out in some ways, like, you know, both of us are, are going to be participating pretty soon in this this event called Changing the Tune on Climate. Um, you know, I wondered what sort of brought you to want to participate in that specific event, you know, if, if it was in part about sort of trying to uh, undo or, or sort of... Um, engage with the kinds of ignorance that people have or if it is more about like just trying to communicate the potential power of of music with its its acuity for communicating emotion um the power that it has to kind of move people on the question of climate action yeah i mean i think music can enact change and can influence people's decisions and can make you know a younger generation or even an older generation aware of, of what's at stake because you know we're inundated with, you know, uh, a lot of news and it's mm-hmm. hard for people not to look at the the climate crisis and, and be like, I can't take that on right now. 
Mm-hmm. I can't be, I can't listen to the radio. I can't watch TV. I can't read anything in the news and, and absorb it. So perhaps music as an outlet or as, as a form of communicating what that is, whether it's through ignorance or just through live performance and people of stature of, can say these things to, you know, their, their audience, but mainly my, you know, willingness to participate in something like this is to have a conversation, to collaborate with other people and be like, you know, where do we, where do we go? Mm. There has to be some element of action, some sort of concrete plan that, you know, artists can enact. Um, and I'm also a teacher at uh, the Nova Scotia Community College in the music business program, mm. where, uh, you know, I have people who are in their early 20s looking to get into the music business. And these are people who are really switched on to, to climate crisis and wondering how, as they're starting to immerse themselves in the music business is what can they do? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of ideas have been exchanged through, um, you know, a group of, of music industry professionals. But, you know, now that we have this younger generation coming up who have grown up in the thick of a, of a climate crisis, and it's sort of top of mind for them, um, you know, I'm hoping they can come out and they can see sort of and contribute to the conversation of what they can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think at the moment anyone's doing anything beyond bringing attention to to the crisis and and trying to keep it top of mind. It becomes when you look at a global climate crisis and you're like, how do I, what do I do? Mm-hmm. How can I, I'm one little person. And, you know, it's like before, you know, it, it became the responsibility of the individual. You got to recycle, you got to do this. And it was like the corporations were able to, you know, shift the narrative to, it's not us, you guys need to do the work. We're we're doing fine and sure, and when you're battling that, it's it tends to suck the life out of you. Absolutely, you know, it's just like ignorance becomes like a burden, sort of uh, foisted onto the individual, right? Um, and education becomes this kind of uh, um, magic bullet answer. It's not that education is unimportant, but unless there are, um, I agree, like ha- things happening at the regulatory level in terms of like industrial policy. Mm-hmm. or around transportation in particular, there's no, it, it's difficult for us to imagine anything like materially. And so I think like, it's sort of, um, I, I'm hearing this term more and more uh, in relationship to the climate crisis and climate communication and action. It's like, it's all hands on deck. I mean, it's it's artists, it's it's people who are running labels. Um, you know, it's it's the public, right? This kind of figure that we like to invoke that is kind of this vague thing. Um, and, and all of these things sort of interlocking and interoperating, I think, um, to like demand the kinds of change that will allow, especially as you say, young people who for, for whom it's top of mind to enter into the music space and, and thrive and not necessarily have to worry about what they're sacrificing, compromising and all of those things. One of the things that you gestured to that I think is really worth thinking about and that I know, you know, music declares emergency is especially sort of wary of is this question of touring. I mean, like the music industry is at a moment. I talked to Kim Fry about this where, you know, inflation and and fuel costs and all kinds of things are converging to make it difficult for even very, very prominent artists to tour. And they're changing the way that they're touring as a result. And yet you still see mega events like Coachella happen in the California desert 
during a historically unprecedented mega drought, mm -hmm. like see these things happen on and and get reported on by the music press like Pitchfork, the, as though there shouldn't be some ambivalence about that. That the point is Frank Ocean giving a lackluster perform performance, not the irony of having this mega spectacle in the desert during a mega drought. I wonder if you could speak to because I'm I'm really curious about like how to just grow the local, how to make people travel less and make you know. Uh, local performance feel viable and exciting. Like, what are the advantages and and also disadvantages that are wrapped up in or or you know um, bound up in this this idea of trying to think locally about uh, selling, as it were, music events like performance and so on. You know, the most expensive food is always the organic and the and the natural food and produce, mm -hmm. whereas the cheapest is the uh, you know the junk food and the sodas and whatnot. And you know. It's probably the biggest cost for for a country like Canada is is, is healthcare. Mm -hmm. But yet, if they were to incentivize a program where you know the better food was cheaper than the bad food, then you would limit the amount of money that goes into healthcare, treating diabetes and and obesity and whatnot. You know, but the people who are on low income or or moderate income or even high income cannot you know are not forking out that money. So. I look at it, I can compare that to the to the environmental crisis with artists, you know, there's going to be a huge cost for environmental uh, pollution and it's already, we've already experienced it. So mm -hmm. to look at it and say like, how do we, you know, wh where do we spend our money? So if you're an artist in touring, like, is there an incentive program to, you know, use, you know, where they subsidize artists who are not, you know, they don't have to go travel all around to Vancouver. It's not like, you know, you cannot sustain yourself in a place like Halifax, A, because there are about four venues in the entire city. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a point of saturation. So it's like, you know, I've always said to uh, artists I work with and my students is that there's a great population base, a dense population base between Halifax and Toronto, all along the 401 Trans-Canada Highway, stick to that. Still, that's going to cause, you know, that, that's a lot of fuel. That's a, a few thousand kilometers going back and forth. But what if there was an incentive program to be like, hey, if you rent an electric vehicle, an electric and and travel in that, like, we'll give you, you mm -hmm. know, X amount of dollars, you know, to offset those costs mm -hmm. uh, to incentivize the artist to look elsewhere uh, or to cover that cost of what it would be to rent um, or purchase, you know, uh, an electric, which is, you know, a lot of artists can barely afford to rent, you know, the the Dodge Caravan. Yeah. Um, so it becomes, you know, you're sort of at a point where, like, the only way we can tour is in the 1985 Econoline that is, you know, horrible for the for the environment and, you know, because yeah. it's not sustainable. Like touring itself is not sustainable, and and that's economically. So environmentally, it's detrimental. Um, so it's a hard thing to reckon with because you can't really micro tour. You can't mm -hmm. sort of tour locally and and earn a living because there just are not enough spots to play. So you have to tour. There's a band out in Vancouver who are, or Victoria who who just broke up, but they had a converted an RV to run on vegetable oil. <laughs> and you know, like if there was a program to incentivize artists to, or at least give them access to methods to reduce their carbon imprint. Like, I think it would be, you know, a little more sustainable. I don't know how much of a change it would make, mm -hmm. um, you know, because you're not going to like the promoters and the venues are not going to you know do an environmental tax that's going to do anything because no one right. want to keep 
ticket costs as low as possible. Mm-hmm. But it's a, you know you have to balance. You know if you're going to be an artist and the only way you're making money is on the road, and that's your biggest outlay of you know carbon carbon emissions. That you know it's how do you how do you weigh that? So mm-hmm. you can go back and, and go like you know what Spotify and all the DSP the streaming services if they paid more there'd be less reason for artists like a lot of artists if they don't tour you know I had I had a friend of mine who was who was saying he was on tour he's like if I don't play a show I lose six hundred dollars he's like I need to play you know in order to maintain it so it's, but you know if these DSPs paid more then the artists wouldn't have to sort of tour as much they could tour more strategically you know mm-hmm. our philosophy that we try to um, impart to our artists is less shows more money mm-hmm. and you know and, and and in turn less of an impact on the environment if you're able to do that right and i mean like i just so appreciate you kind of making that visual in a way for people like just trying to give them a sense of the the reality of of artists who um, are in many cases just scraping by, you know, and how that uh, the the market basically dictates these kinds of tough choices. Um, because I think, you know, the average person in some ways doesn't, I don't think necessarily grasps the the kind of unglamorous reality of, of you know, making music and trying to sustain a life making music. You know, we we um, celebrate and for good reason, the the energy and the creativity of of uh, musicians. Uh, and we're fed also, I think, like certain stories about musicians. You know, I just recently watched the documentary Meet Me in the Bathroom, which is about the birth of the, you know, the scene in New York City in the early aughts with the Strokes and Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and Interpol and all these incredible bands. And very quickly, the narrative shifts to like showing the strokes flying to the UK, right? Like it's it's that invasion mentality um, that the industry still kind of wants to uh, uh, sell the public in some ways that the legitimate artist is the the artist that invades new markets. Um, but I think like the the method or approach to exposure that you're describing, which is a more caring approach, I would say, mm-hmm. is to me more exciting and and more enticing you know and i guess the question for me is like do you uh, do you think as a as a label runner about how to sell that model uh which is a model that says like the health effects the health benefits of music itself for people's uh um psychology and their even physical well-being are undisputed right Mm -hmm. but what we're trying to connect that to and is this idea that we also need to think globally about the health effects of staging these mega events where people have to travel from all over the place and we know what the carbon imprint is. Like, how do you just like draw the connection in a convincing way in order to get to that place where they're, where, you know, we inhabit a, a healthier ecosystem for that fosters the health effects of music? It, it's incredibly hard. Like I, I look right. at it and I, I see the issue at, at play and, you know the the possible solutions and it's hard to so like how do you how would you enable the, the, these things to happen like mm. when you look at you know I, I know part of the discussion uh next week is in regards to the junos i remember when they were in saskatoon a few years ago actually right at the right right before they were canceled at the time uh you know basically day of as COVID started air canada had added a bunch of flights Mm. you know toronto to saskatoon taxi companies were 
were arming themselves with as many cars as possible. And you look at it and you're like, wow, like hmm. how much, you know, the increase, if you were to, you know, if they actually went off, you know, the measurement of, of an environmental impact versus a regular day in Saskatoon would probably be astronomical. Mm -hmm. Why is this happening? You know, and, and it's again, comes to money where it's like, you know, these cities bid for the, the ability to host these events because they look at it and they're like, all these people from around the country are coming to this event and they are paying money to stay in the hotels, eat at restaurants, do all the things. And it's supposed to provide this huge boost to the economy. Mm. I don't know the exact figures. I don't know exactly how, how much an event like this will contribute to the economy, but you know, do they measure how much the environmental impact is of something like this? Right. And if you go and, you know, I'm from Toronto, don't hold it against me, but, and, you know, recently moved here. And I know that, you know, everyone who's coming, you know, a majority of the, the music industry is in Toronto. So they're adding probably the real, they will add flights from Toronto to Halifax. Um, and I'm like, why are we, why are we doing this? Why are we bringing, you know, even when I went to the um, Nova Scotia Music Week uh, in Sydney, it was basically transporting Halifax to Sydney. Mm. And the same thing, it's just like, there's a great music scene here, but it's incredibly small. But they're basically bringing in, you know, Toronto to Halifax. And they basically, you know, and there's, I would guess, probably 70% of the attendees are from Toronto. And there's got to be a better way. How do, how do we make it so the cities can have this cash injection? But at what cost? Yeah, this is a big part of the push and one of the major talking points of the uh, Changing the Tune event. Um, and when I, you know, I talked to Kim Fry about the that objective and she said something really, really fascinating. She said, like, when a big sports event comes to a city, uh, the trade-off is always this thing of like, we're going to have a massive influx of capital. We're going to have a, a, a flood of people into the city um, and that will be a benefit. But the thing that she noted is that like the difference when it comes to a sporting event, to some extent, a city will also see an infrastructure boost where like that sport, uh, major sport event, whatever it may, Canada Games, blah, blah, blah. You'll see like a new facility emerge mm -hmm. out of no out of nowhere. Right. Suddenly you can the city can find the money and, you know, cities are cash strapped relative to provinces and, and the federal government, blah, blah, blah. But the, the key point was just that why why is it that we never imagine a major music event having a lasting positive, even economic impact on, a, a, you know, a local, like a community. It, when it comes to sporting events, like we we do see um, a positive change to like the infrastructure and, and the sort of imagined or real health benefits of that. We don't think in those terms when it comes to music, like you spoke to the number of venues in Halifax, you know, it, sh it, it feels to me like it should be possible to conceive of how a big event like this would also see the emergence, hopefully, of some new infrastructure for fostering the creation of music in the city. Do you see that kind of structural piece as kind of missing from the initiative of greening the Junos? Or or is that like maybe a bridge too far in terms of policy? I don't know. Well, always. I mean, I think that's always the case. Like even with mm. Toronto, they were like, we're going to be a music city. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, shuttering all these venues because they couldn't afford the rent. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there were ticketing you know, vans that would pull up to venues to to load in things, and they had some performative gestures 
Um, I think the bottom line, it does, it feels like, you know, you can measure the Junos in a way like, like a concert, you know, it's like once you turn the lights on after the show, all you see is scattered beer bottles and gum mm-hmm. and whatnot left on the floor. So it's like, there's great benefit. The Junos are a great organization. Karis is a great, great organization and they definitely have the best of intentions, but it it's also a TV show. Right. You know, the Junos. it's also a, you know, they employ a lot of people and a lot of people get these temporary job placements um, because of this. So it's, you need the government involvement to be like, Hey, you know what, this is great. Let's, let's, let's look at a multi-purpose facility, but you know, let's just make our, our city more attractive to arts. Mm. You know, let's create more venues. Let's give, let's, you know, give them rent relief. Let's give them opportunity to have these spaces because they're so valuable for community. These spaces are needed to foster community. It's like, you know, if you're getting youth who are interested in music, you know, having an all, you know, there's a, the all ages venue, the Palladium down in the commons, just like a place to, to experience music, you know, and a lot of the artists are now not being able to live in the city. You know, because of the high cost of living. So it's it's a real tough gig being an artist right now. Um, so when you look at a place like Halifax, it's just like Halifax is a music city. The province is so musical. There should be more venues than there are now. And they should be, um, you know, looked upon as, as community spaces Yeah, that, you know, enrich a community where people who are, you know, have a condo, you know, downtown and they should be able to go to a cool venue to see, you know, a young jazz artist or a young folk artist, or, you know, if they want to go see a dance or an indie artist, like have that ability there. That doesn't exist right now in Halifax. Mm. And it is just so inarguably enriching. Like I think people, there's a spontaneous thing, right. With, with regard to music, like there's just, it's something undeniable about it. Um, I think anyway, and, and having that, you know, would be transformative in my, in my view on that point though, like I wanted to ask you about, you know, I guess this is an opening for plugs also like the artists that you want to plug. What are the kinds of songwriting that usually resonates with you? Like, do you, and, and a kind of sub question here is like, I think when it comes to music, like with the weather stations, ignorance. Uh, or even like Wise Blood's Titanic Rising, or there's a number of artists that are now explicitly writing songs about this coming catastrophe. Like there's a there's a weird way in which they're trying to speak very earnestly without being like pedantic in their songs. Uh, even Bo Burnham's Inside has that funny feeling with these lines yeah. like that, the unapparent air in late fall, the quiet comprehending of the ending of it all. These poetic lines, like, there's not they're not broadly speaking to the problem right they're not they're not sort of um heavy-handedly political um are like do you is that what resonates primarily with you when it comes to music that does try and move into like a space of communicating the climate emergency and and what is it that you find most moving basically in music yeah i mean i'm a bibliophile i I love books and i love i love the words you know i'm also someone who, who loves music from you know Laurel Canyon days in the 60s and 70s sort of like the birth of the singer-songwriter uh in that sense where um I want artists to to put it all out on a record and it's it's what they're feeling whether it's it's love or anger or frustration you know anything and you know I appreciate the art form of of being able to write these lyrics and then be able to put music to them um you know all of our artists are really cognizant of their life experience and then who they are as people 
uh, and they're still trying to figure it out. And so I always look to, you know, stuff that speaks to me and it's, you know, universal themes, but can be articulated in a way that you know, is delivered poetically. Like when you look at, you know, as ignorance is a protest record, it's beautifully done. And you are, you know, drawn in through the lyrics by the, the production and the music. And it's, it's somebody who has, you know, the artists that appeal to us and that we want to work with have these big visions and, and they have something to say. Thanks so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime.